Welcome to episode 11 of the Headstuff podcast with uh, Stuart Clark, deputy editor of Hot Press. I'm also joined by Dave and Ratty. Dave's here at the moment. Holla at your boy. <laughs> we'll talk about that. <laughs> uh, that other voice you're going to hear is Connor, who's uh, Connor Wilkins, who's the, what are you, the engineer? Producer? Um, what are you? I am the brains. The brains. <laughs> I want Connor, to tell him, that's very rude. Connor Wilkins, I don't know what he is. He what just comes you? with equipment and he makes it sound good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Connor Wilkins, the brains of the operation. And the eye candy. The, the eye candy. It's very, very attractive, candy. I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I'm, I'm, you know, it's not my kind of thing. He's an attractive man. Maybe yeah. by the end of this podcast. Yeah, he's married, hands off. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that so we've just interviewed uh, uh, Stuart Clark, uh, lovely man. Uh, he's well able to spin a yarn. I think that about covers it. Uh, no, yeah, he, yeah. Stuart's awesome. Um, I mean, Stuart, go back a little bit from my hot press days. Yeah, um, he's you're tremendous. talking about your hot presses in a closet. Yeah, I used to live in a, in, a, in a hot press. This is getting very strange, <laughs> and we've only just started. Um, Stuart's cool. Uh, see ya. <laughs> Uh, Stuart knows his stuff. He's the deputy editor of Hot Press magazine. He's been so for quite a while. He's kind of a mainstay of the Irish music scene. I think everyone knows Stuart. And if they don't know Stuart, well then, you know, bully for you because he's a good guy. Um, but yeah, he's yeah. he's kind of like a one-man encyclopedia of all things music. Yeah. And every- yeah whenever we talked to him, whenever we said anything, it was just like, there was like a keyword in there and he's like, gone. He's like talking and... He's a pro. <clears throat> yeah, he's Not a- like you or me. No. <laughs> I can't well, speak for Connor. He no. might be a pro. But uh, Stuart's definitely a pro. Uh, yeah, I like to think I'm getting better. All right, <laughs> you, you can have that opinion. So, uh, Dave, tell me what's going on uh, at the moment on Headstuff Music, your section of Headstuff. I feel like we should have some kind of sting music for this, yeah. like some kind of incredible. We should. I, I can put some in if you want. Yeah, we should. Okay, there's okay. pressure. There's pressure now on me to, to live up to this. Yeah. Okay, so pairing some sting music over me. I hope. I hope it's really good. We should get sting music. Let's write that down. Uh, yeah. um, <laughs> so anyway, uh, on Headstuff Music, it's been a good. Uh, it's been a good run for Headstuff Music. That sounds like I'm quitting. It's been a good. Been a good <laughs> well, run. we've had a good run. It's been a good yeah. run. <laughs> and uh, I'm out so uh, no we, we have some really cool stuff on the site at the moment uh, we actually just started a new feature called One Track Minded which is about yeah. taking one song by an artist and kind of examining that um, forthwith the first one is a Sufjan Stevens song called Casimir Pulaski Day it's brilliant and I believe Sufjan Stevens record label saw this yep. and instead of sending us a cease and desist they <laughs> said oh this is great lads we'll share it so we've had lots of Sufjan Stevens fans reading up and kind of uh, getting involved uh, and they did a great thing actually they didn't just share it they, they kind of wrote a question it was like do you kind of agree or else like what would you suggest might be his kind of yeah we, we basically did the job for them of whoever runs their Facebook page so <laughs> I'm expecting a hefty check in the post I don't know about you well but. it's done well the, the article's doing very well it's got a lot of shares and that's that's all thanks to that so. yeah we also have um, a review an almost 2000 word review of the Dr. Dre record Compton yeah. by, by Joshua Hughes our, it's a really really good review our hip hop correspondent who walks the streets of Toronto every day for us and takes in the sights and sounds and the crystal <laughs> blue waters he popped to Compton to review this album and <laughs> yeah he, he gets around Josh does and uh, yeah that's uh, honestly please everyone go and read that review because um, it, it's it's absolutely great like it, it's, it's a really really good it's piece it's a really good review very, very of a really good album as well because yeah. the review got me to listen to it and it's really good Josh knows his stuff, uh, mm. especially when it comes to hip hop. Like he's, it, it's, it's his baby. Uh, upcoming on the website, we, we will have interviews with Bitch Falcon and Alias Empire. I'm looking forward to those Exciting. landing. They should be on the website very, very soon. And yeah, I mean, like it's, it, it's, it's, it's been good. Of course, we recently had that piece by Louise Bruton um, about, yep. you know, male musicians being and described the same way as female musicians, which yeah. broke the website. Yeah, <laughs> thanks, Louise. <laughs> Thank you very much. But in breaking it, it made us realize that we needed to make. 
it's stronger and now it's stronger than ever. We're better people all around, I think. We are better. <laughs> yeah. Um, we are. We're, we, yeah, that, we learned a lot from that. So that was, that was really good. How have uh, you been? Uh, grand, yeah, grand. I've been trying to good. keep up with all. Thank you very much. Um, we'll put a we'll put a photo in at this point. I think. Um, yeah, no, we've I've been I've been trying to keep up with with the growing website, which is um, makes it sound like it's your child. Kind of, it kind of is. It kind of is. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of is. I mean, I didn't want to have it. Um, it's growing quicker than I, <laughs> it's growing quicker than I can Jesus handle. Jesus Christ! Um, it's costing me more than I wanted it to. Um, Thanks for listening, everyone. This is the last episode of the House of Podcasts. Site will be dissolved by the time that you uh, uh, finish no, this. No, it's 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 all it's all going very well. Um, there's always uh, nice bits of news that are uh, that are coming up, and I can't wait to share. Um, but I can't share just yet. Are you pregnant again <laughs> with another yes, website? Yes, you can. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so what else? Let's see. Uh, anything about, uh, say, Taylor Swift coming up in the no, section? it's funny you should ask. <laughs> Seamless. Seamless. Uh, <laughs> Link King over here. Uh, the reason Alan has mentioned Taylor Swift is not because she's done something, which she probably has, because you know anything Taylor Swift does is news. It's more that I kind of off the cuff said, oh, you know, you know, is really grinding my gears at the moment, and of course it's some someone who's popular. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, Taylor Swift makes some good tunes. Might be a robot. That's my general kind of take on the situation. <coughs> yeah. Um. I. I. She. I think she's hilariously running. A, she, she's having a Jose Mourinho esque PR game at the moment, and it's. It's. It's amazing because I mean it doesn't mean. Wait, anything. I don't understand what you mean. No. Oh, you don't watch football, do you? I do. You're one of those but people. Jose or Jose? Jesus. Jose. Jose. Jose yeah. on the brain at all times. <laughs> Jose Mourinho. Jose Mourinho has having, terrible PR. He's having. A, yeah, I'm saying she's having a bad PR. Do you game. think so? Yeah. At the moment, I, I feel she, like she whole, can do no wrong. Uh, well, that's until she had the weird. We're going to disagree. Twitter for, uh, uh, war, off, she, had the Twitter, she had the Twitter war words with Nicki Minaj. Where yeah, Nicki did she Minaj, not come out best on that? No, she oh. did not. Nicki well, Minaj, then I just read that whole thing. Nicki Minaj was making valid points about about racism and kind of about how black artists are perceived. And Taylor Swift decided to swing for the fences as she often does. And she was like, "You know, I've always supported." I don't know why I'm putting on an emotional voice for a tweet. I, I, I can only imagine that this was her internal monologue at the time. Right, but she basically made it about herself, and you know. I think Taylor Swift, pretty statuesque, white, blonde, massively successful, might as well have a trademark next to her name, can't really try and relate to the struggles of an artist like Nicki Minaj. And granted, the whole thing was over the fucking MTV Video Music Awards, and, you know, it doesn't mean anything. But, you, I, but Nicki Minaj is, is hardly struggling. No, it's She's not also that. It's more successful. That she, but she made the argument that her video, her ludicrous video for Anaconda, granted, you know, broke records, which it did, and therefore should be recognised in this category of music videos, which it should. But it wasn't. And right. Taylor Swift kind of weighed in and was like, no, 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 it's not about that. Um, maybe, Didn't Gangnam Style also break records? I'm music. not saying it's a good thing. I'm just <laughs> saying if you're going to have an award show to celebrate shit music videos that break records, right. surely the shittest one that broke the most records should be right. in there. Yeah, that's And it point. isn't. Um, a Taylor Swift one is in there because it has you know a lot more gloss going on it and a lot more white people. Although Kendrick Lamar is on the track. Kendrick Lamar, by the way, on that Taylor Swift track, Bad Blood. I love Kendrick Lamar. Of course, he's great. Yeah. You've yeah. never heard someone phone in their their work on a track more like Kendrick Lamar on Taylor Swift's Bad Blood. It's incredible. Oh yeah, how less how much le- less oh, good he is on man. that. Than, it's, it's yeah. not, he's fine because it's still Kendrick Lamar, but like even his lyrics, you're just like, man, he wrote this in ten minutes, didn't he? Yeah. Like, it's just so like, fuck, I better write this. Uh, it's like when Kanye dropped God Level for that Adidas ad. You could tell he was going through his trash files for Jesus and was like, oh shit, that Adidas thing? Uh, this. <laughs> This'll do. It's not even not even mastered. It's <laughs> clipping all over the place. But uh, anyway, back to Taylor Swift. It's more one of those things where I just think that she's a hypocrite, especially the whole Apple Music thing. I thought that was a massive publicity stunt and anyone who doesn't think it's a massive publicity stunt is wrong. Right. So, you know, no no questions. No, sorry, no ambiguity here whatsoever. If you fell for that, you know, read a book because, you know, <laughs> 
it's it was so textbook it was embarrassing um and i think the, the Nicki minaj thing was embarrassing in its own way but i think taylor swift really let herself down and at one point she i think in the initial tweet she also goes maybe it was one of the men who did it and it was like okay calm down you know it was yeah. like what are you doing like i mean like like, like it just felt really really strange and i thought it was a really a rare uh pure misstep for taylor and i think people are kind of moving against her in certain capacities but like i said it won't really mean anything she's a fucking juggernaut she's a corporation she can do anything her, the time whenever her next video comes out and has whoever in it people will forget about this kind of thing and yeah. you know move on but i just think the more i see of taylor swift because she is an artist where like you don't see a lot of her I, and i mean her the kind of person behind i mean like to use an example of someone like selena gomez who actually had a, an amazing song out about um, a month ago called Good For You, which really, really shocked me how good it was. She did an interview a while ago, came across like a really cool, down-to-earth person, the kind of person you go for a drink with and be like, yeah, she's good crack. I can see Taylor Swift in that scenario. I'm sure she has fun off-camera, but there's just something there, man. I mean, like, if you told me that she was powered down every night and put into a pod, <laughs> I'd be like, yep, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, But okay. good tunes, though. Like I said, she writes good tunes. Right. Or her yeah, I, I mean, she seems like a nice girl, but she do, she seems a little bit too perfect, maybe. Oh, really? Well, do you not think everything seems a bit... Well, yeah, I mean, like, I, I don't know. I mean, it just sounds like you've got a massive crush on her. Do you have a massive crush on her, Ellen? She's a nice girl. <laughs> tell you what, we'll, uh, we'll get her on the podcast. And we'll go uh, I there. actually know very little about her. She's, uh, she is, I suppose, a generic pop star, and um, I know the Shake It Off song. Good song. But any other song, I couldn't tell you about her. I don't know any other of her songs. I'm sure um, she has other songs. Yeah, I mean, like, her most recent album kind of has about four songs. That I think all the singles kind of sound the same, but they're, they're effective. They're very yeah, well I produced. Couldn't, I couldn't tell you what they are, though. They're very That's well the produced. They're, they're full of hooks. Right. Um, you know, like a bad Hellraiser movie, and they're yeah, they're fine. I mean, yeah. they're good, but there's, I, I find that there's a distinct lack of emotion about the whole thing. Right. Okay. So, what about a Taylor Swift cover band? Would you like that? Uh, I would not like that. But actually, it's would there be the, more emotion in it? There probably would be. Yeah, <laughs> a lot more fucking preening bullshit emotion in there. It's it's funny that you mentioned that actually because Ryan Adams is doing a cover version of Taylor Swift's most recent. I saw album. something about her whole album, 1989, which is the yeah. album that all these songs are on. He's doing his own version of it. She and seemed excited about it. Of the whole album, the whole album, and he even like has put out the cover art, which is him replicating the cover art of 1989. The whole Polaroid which is, gimmick. What is it? It's like a Polaroid shot of oh. the of the artist and kind of like made to look whatever. But here's the thing: I was having this conversation with um, with my friend Craig Fitzpatrick of Hopper's magazine recently and I was saying that it's the lamest thing I've ever heard it's kind of embarrassing and I know he's got form for this Ryan Adams not Craig right. uh, Ryan Adams has formed I think he he did a cover of an entire Strokes album that I don't think he ever released okay. and he's kind of a bit wacky right? but based on that cover art his Twitter campaign the snippets he's released from it I think this is a textbook example of someone who's gone through a messy divorce and is desperate for some kind of, you know, I don't know, security or Is he attention. gone through a messy divorce? Yeah, he got divorced from Mandy Moore recently. Oh. And, yeah, it's bad. Like, right. he, there was a snippet of uh, his cover of Shake It Off, and right. it sounds horrendous. It sounds right. like someone did it in a garage oh. in, you know, like he's never played before. So is this like a Taylor Swift shadow plane? Is he trying to... Possibly. <laughs> I think she's taken though, isn't she? I have no idea. Calvin Harris, I believe, is there these days. Oh, um, lovely for them. He's great. <laughs> I love his music. Is that a fact? No. Okay. <laughs> um, he's, yeah. So no, yeah, but you mentioned cover, uh, covering things. Um, I don't know. Um, I, I, I find that cover bands are possibly the worst thing in the world. Um, they're usually populated by incredibly smug dickheads who think that they're amazing. 
and will walk around the street puffing out their chest, showing you how amazing they are. And I speak from experience of this, sadly. Um, yes, I, have you ever been in a cover band? No, I've been in I've been in bands that didn't make it, and, mm. and I've, I've been in. Of course, I'm so obviously I'm I'm bitter. Um, but Connor, I've seen have you ever been in a cover band. Uh, no. No. But you've done covers though. Well, maybe when I was younger, yeah. Um yeah. I think we covered an approximation of two songs ever. You can't turn around now and say, aha, as I know you're going to. No, I'm not. Um but aha. I think <laughs> no. damn it. Yeah, you're, you're, no. ta- you're talking about professional gigging professional cover Professional gigging cover bands who who, you know, their big gimmick is to, to do a medley of Black Eyed Peas right. and Code Line and whatever the fuck they do and then speed <laughs> and then speed it up, you know, because that's just so cool, man. Um yeah, I, I think they're awful. I think they're trash. I do think you think there's no good cover bands? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, there, actually, there's an anecdote we told on the previous podcast uh, where, uh, what was it, the Stone Roses experience had a bigger audience at them at Oxygen or something than Ian Brown had. Well, see, they're probably actually and they're on the same time professional about what they do. Okay, so professional probably, cover bands might be okay. sound good. Look, I mean, no. There's I, a few I, of these cover bands that are really big. See, here's like, the thing. I mean, like, I think that a lot of, it's, I'm going to say that if you're in a cover band, you're not a musician. That's how I see it. And I'm not saying that doesn't mean that you can't play music because they can clearly play it very, very well. It's very, very difficult. It's just, you know, they're doing a job. But I have to wonder why you would do that. You know, why would you do that? If you could make music, why would you choose to do that? Money? If so, you've got no soul. <coughs> and if it's more that I can't write music, well, then that's a shame. What are you still doing? You know? What do you think of that, Connor? I just think, I suppose, there's a lot of musicians who are, you know... They're good at their craft and they just want to play. But you're not good at your craft if you're just crafting someone else's Why do you think of guys? Yeah, but like, like you're saying that they're not a musician. They're still, you're still a musician if you can play your instrument to a... You know. Yeah, I mean, like my statement is obviously very flippant and, <laughs> and would, you know, would be destroyed in, in any kind of, you know, interrogation. What about people, the fashion, lads but, having a session down a pub? Yeah. Are, are they musicians? Uh, I wouldn't go to that pub. A- uh, any pub that has a session ever? No. They're not musicians. Oh, no, of course they're musicians. The pub is not a pub that you are willing to <laughs> yeah. frequent. Get very existential now. The pub is not a pub. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, like, like, I mean, again, I mean, like, trad music is clearly very skillful, and if you know, if that's what you want to do, more power to you. I have nothing against it. It's not my kind of thing. Right. No, I think having it. I mean, like, I don't know. I mean, like, that's like saying someone who breaks out an acoustic guitar at a party, who's usually the, the biggest dickhead at the party. But I mean, like, you know, <laughs> you're making like, a lot of enemies. Maybe. That's that's how you know, you right? Know? Okay, like, yeah, oh, yeah. that's who it was. Yeah. I was waiting for it. Um, but no, I don't know. I feel like I've kind of made my point, and I've probably alienated the entire listening audience. Yeah, but um, it's, all Dave's opinions are Dave's opinions, <laughs> and uh, the opinions of Headstuff.org. No, no. <laughs> I wish you were clear to say we could say that. We could ask him what he thinks of cover bands. Uh, I'd imagine next time. I'm going to say time. that Stuart would have the same opinion as me. Stuart, Stuart appreciates originality, creativity. I appreciate originality, but mm. but that's not the same as somebody paying homage or not maybe being good at writing, but still really good. You could have a great guitarist in a cover band, you know. Yeah, it's a more about singer. but it's more about like you know. I, I just find I find it strange how people in cover bands generally, through my own experience, and I've you know met a lot of them. Um, I think that pe- people who are in bands uh, are generally very humble. Um, you know, you talk to anyone in Dublin, even like you know, Bitch Falcon, Overhead, the Albatross, Kid Karate, people like that. They're generally very humble people and right. aren't, you know, like cocky and full of themselves. They can be to a degree when they're on stage, maybe as part of a performance. But, you know, cover bands, I don't know, man. I don't know what it is. Did you just not get enough, you know, food as a child or something? Like, what are you making up for? You know, it just feels like a dick measuring contest. Whoa. A lot of guys in cover bands, I suppose, are in original bands as well. True. And it's kind of like a... Um, I hope they have massive... Existential crisis about that, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they should. <laughs> 
All right, so Dave hates cover bands. We should maybe uh, Love them, <laughs> maybe let's maybe let's uh, let's get a bit from uh, Stuart Clark. Maybe we move on to the uh, the interview. What do you think? Good idea. Let's That's do a good it. idea. Yeah, uh, Stuart's cool. Uh, I hope he was never in a cover band. I'll probably learn to my horror that he was. Yeah, uh, or still, or he's just started one. Um, <laughs> so yeah, um, I think it, it, we, we've already talked to him, so we can say now with the benefit of hindsight that it was uh, the worst interview we've ever. No, um, he was great. Uh, he has, as I said before, he has a wealth of knowledge and he's someone who, I mean, again, speaking of humility, he's never going to turn around and say this, but like I've seen Stuart fight for a lot in terms of Irish musicians. He mentions the kind of hip hop scene and I remember when himself and he mentions Maeve Heslin, who was a writer there at the time, they were the only ones in that office who were really pushing for it. They were like, you know, they were trying to talk to people like Lethal Dialect and Temperamental Miscellaneous. And I'm not saying that they did anything that no one else has done since or even whatever, and, or even I'm sure there are other places doing it at the time, but I think for Hot Press, you know, it was maybe like they were trying to be progressive and it can be difficult, you know, to kind of start something new. And it seemed like almost every issue for a while, there was a lot on hip hop. And I think Stuart is very much a music lover, first and foremost. I mean, I think, you know, he's, he's not boxed in. He likes what he likes. He obviously doesn't like what he doesn't like, like anybody would, Mm -hmm. but I think he's very fair and he's also very approachable. I think, you know, I'm not saying, you know, Hey bands go and, bother Stuart when he's out but um, he'll probably talk to you you know he's a good guy right very passionate guy as well yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. Very seems like he would have talked for another yeah three hours the other time yeah uh, yeah no I, I think he definitely didn't hold back and he'd love to say so uh, without well I suppose I should also say we have um, you can you can now support Headstuff on, on Patreon or is it Patreon Patreon? Do you know how to pronounce it? I thought it was Patron, like the tequila, but I guess it probably isn't, is it? No, it's either Patreon or Patreon. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's patreon.com give it, give forward slash uh, uh, headstuff. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, you can you can support us and be a patron, and that would be great. You get all sorts of rewards. Uh, so, without uh, without uh, stalling anymore, uh, here <laughs> is episode 11 of the Headstuff podcast with Stuart Clark. Stuart Clark, welcome onto the Headstuff podcast. Thanks very much. Uh, I'm here with uh, Dave Henratty, the music editor. What's cracking? What's cracking? Always ready to uh, to disagree with me. Yes. on everything. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> so uh, let's 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 get let's get started. Uh, Stuart is the deputy editor of of Hot Press. That's right. I'm the new boy. I've been there about 23 years. Yeah. I'm like Ronnie Wood, who'll always be the new member of the Rolling Stones, <laughs> though he joined in like 1973. So yeah, the newcomer. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, so uh, let's. I suppose how long did it did it take you to get to to that level in Hot Press? Where did you start in, in Hot Press? Um, well, I started as a, a stringer uh, in Limerick, and what worked out well at the time was the Cranberry Saurus were, were taking off, and oh, okay. I knew Dolores very well. I remember on her leaving cert results night, she was saying, oh, "Shall I give the band a go, Stuart?" I said, "Well, you know, maybe twelve months, Dolores, and if it's not taken off by then, <laughs> you know, maybe go and do your course." She went to um, school with my girlfriend at the time. And it was really interesting because people say, oh, the first time you saw the Cranberry Sauce, you knew they were going to be huge. And I was going, no, they're rubbish. She was, and not being sort of a body fascist, she was about two stone heavier and was wearing Aaron jumpers. And on stage, you'd look at the floor, the ceiling, you know, her fellow band members, but not the crowd. And what happened was there's this guy called Pierce Gilmore who had a little studio locally who, um, you know, a few days after the Leaving Cert Results night, put the band on 20 quid a week and made them go to the studio t- to work every day. They'd spend four hours writing songs and, and four hours playing live and recording. And a few of us, a few local hacks, including Kevin Barry, the author, uh, oh. who was working for Limerick Post at the time, were invited up in September to kind of see what had been happening. And they played the debut album, 
linger and dreams, and you're going, oh, my God. <laughs> it's the only time I've been around a band that's gone from being the worst youth club band you could imagine to selling 27 million records in about sort of 18 months. It was quite exhilarating to see it, and I still stand over those first two Cranberries records. The rest... <laughs> Not so much. <laughs> right. <laughs> so would you say that the Cranberry success is 100% down to you? I'd say about 90%. I don't want to be a big head here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I did their fair. first press release, and they paid me with a bottle of Jack Daniels, the best two hours' work I've ever done. <laughs> Any bands out there want to give me bottles of spirits, I'll do anything for you, pretty much. <laughs> what Blowies, an offer. The whole lot. <laughs> um, and then you moved to Hot Press in, was it 1990? Yeah, I moved to Hot Press in, in, in 1990. To give you a bit of background, I'd started off uh, in pirate radio. Yeah. And as a kid, back in, in, in Kent, we ran around tower blocks and, 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 and woods with transmitters being chased by the, the, the post office, as was. And we got fed up having our gear nicked and going to court and our parents getting really very upset, having to go down the cop shop and, and sort of get us out. And Ireland had, well, they, they were broadcasting laws, but you could drive a, a horse and cart through them. Like, you could go into court and say, this transmitter gives off light. It, it could be a light. And the judge would go, ooh, according to the law, it could be a light. It, it gives <laughs> off heat. It could be a heater. And it, go, ooh, it could be a heater. <laughs> so there's no broadcasting laws. So we rocked up with a, an old Ford Cortina uh, full of spare parts and started a radio station up in a, a mobile home. In a, in a carpet warehouse in Tremor and grew that station. It was called ABC Radio. Then I kind of left and worked in Italy. Then I worked on Radio Caroline off the um, Essex coast, the boat that rocked, and also uh, worked for Collar Shalom, the voice of peace, which was three miles off of Tel Aviv. So I, I, I'd done radio, and I was back then in Ireland and, and hot press game recording. Basically, the pirates got closed down, and I had to start writing for a living. There was nothing else to do. Right. And through the Cranberries, got up to Dublin uh, at a very interesting time because, you know, it was the, the Celtic Tiger was booming. There was loads of money, and, and I saw the excesses of the music industry on, on every single level. <laughs> uh, wow, well, so there's a lot there to, uh, to ask you about. Um, I think you should start with the excesses on every single level. Um, okay. Uh, no, I'm going to start with the boat that rocked, because I love that. <laughs> How accurate was it, and did you like the film? Well, it was kind of obviously um, embellished. It, it looked like Radio Caroline, and um, the original Radio Caroline was fitted out in 1964 in the port of Grenoble, by Ron O'Reilly, whose grandfather, The O'Reilly, was a hero of the 1916 Rising, got shot dead, though, which is a bit of a drawback. But um, so really, the radio station that revolutionised radio in the UK and Ireland was run by an Irishman. Not only that, but the two super pirates back in the 80s and 90s that took over in Dublin, Radio Nova was a Caroline old boy, Chris Carey, who broadcast on Carolina's Spangles Muldoon. So I think I should be Maltesers Clark. It's a great name, Spangles Muldoon. And another guy called Robbie Dale, who ran Sunshine Radio in Port Marnock. So Caroline's kind of... Roland was brilliant because he was managing George Lazenby in the oh. 60s, who did one <laughs> James Bond film. On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Yeah, which was really good. <laughs> it's really good. Yeah, people hate that movie. Yeah. Yeah. And he came to sign a new contract. Roland went, nah, there's this Cold War stuff, old hat. Don't you sign that contract. Stick with me, kid. <laughs> and George Lazenby to this day sort of... But we, we had fun partly because we were smuggled out of, of Kent onto the boat and smuggled back into France. It was very cloak and dagger. 
And the Essex police used to come out every sort of four or five days to take photos, but they weren't used to being at sea, so they'd be throwing up. <laughs> and we'd be doing things on the side of the boat to make them throw up. And <laughs> having little, little contests between the five boys to see if we could achieve something before the others. And with balaclavas on, you can imagine it was like very pure. <laughs> um, we had a, another radio station on board called Radio Monique, who were Dutch and had more money. And they were based in Amsterdam. And to help us relax, they used to bring lots and lots and lots of... Um, Herbal bits and pieces on board. So it was a real. I, I was a, a hippie newsreader. Um, I used to be off me gicker all the time talking about. It was a very bad time in the north, and I was the only person on, on British radio who could say Drogheda and Clonus and Thurlus, like the BBC of a pronunciation department. And they were Drogheda, Drogheda, but I was Drogheda. And yeah. I had clones quite a few times. Right. But um, I, I saw the weirdest thing ever on Radio Caroline in my whole life. We were 14 miles off the coast of Essex, and I was out there for seven weeks in, in, in one tour of duty. And if we came within about five miles of the coast, we were breaking the law, could be fined 10 grand, the boat could be impounded. So one morning about seven, I sort of go up on deck, and I'm going, bloody hell, that's a bus, that's South End. We're a mile off. I could, I could, I'm blind, and I could read the names of, of, of shop fronts. So I went downstairs and I got the captain and got into a right old panic. We came back up and there was South End. We went back down again to check the equipment, the deck and navigator. And we came back and South End had disappeared. And what it was, it's refraction. It's like a, a camera or, or a whatever, binoculars. The image would bounce off the clouds, back onto the water, back onto the clouds, back onto the water. as a magnifying glass. And you hear of people taking off at Shannon saying they could see the Empire State Building. But apparently it's possible. If all the planets align, if all the clouds and the water align, and it was the most amazing thing I've ever seen, very very trippy, but wow. actually did happen. Um, so Caroline was was fun, but kind of antisocial being on board a, a boat with about twelve other men, some strange Dutch people, including one called Dick the Trousers. But I'll go no <laughs> further into that, and, and a ship's dog that was in grave moral danger. Right. <laughs> wow. Uh, okay. And that also covered the excesses. Mm. And the excesses, yeah. Um, do you want to describe those in greater detail, or? Well, when it comes to the industry, I can remember the charlatans flying us all over and sticking us in like a six hundred quid a night hotel, and they'd rented out the former MI five building in Mayfair, Jesus. three floors of it. And for some reason, they decided to have a, a Middle Eastern Bedouin theme. So there was all these like mad tents and sort of hasher pipes and what have you. And they'd flown in. I met an old mate of mine who was working on Radio Botswana, probably the hardest radio station I've ever seen in the world, in South Africa. He'd been flown over. And we, we thought we would get to interview the band, but no, it was just to kind of hang out and get to know the boys. And we're going to do the interviews the following week, and they never happened. And that party, I mean, must have cost the bones of like half a million Whoa. to organise. There was like hundreds of people there. There was like champagne. I, I went to the launch. It was Bad Boy Inc. And they had a, an act called Ashantai. And um, similar kind of thing. You just walk in, there's bottles of Cristal and there was oysters and stuff like that. A friend of mine, Emma, who, who took us across it, some really nasty man was just trod on my foot. So I went, oh, I'll sort him out. I said, Where? Point him out to me. She said, Over there. I went, Lennox Lewis, world heavyweight champion. Okay, I think he can you know, stand on your foot as much as he wants to. And, and it was just, there was so much money. Bands were being signed for three million quid. There's a famous story about a band called Junkster uh, who was signed because their name 
like garbage. And <laughs> the bones of three million quid were spent on them, and apparently it would have been cheaper to have given everybody who bought the record five grand than <laughs> to actually proceed. And, and they were a great band. I mean, you know, Junkster were really, really good, a Dublin band. I met an A&R man once from Sony um, after the Frank and Warders and the Soldiers of Ping had been on top of the pops in successive weeks, and he was across here, and I said, what are you doing here? I, I'm signing a band. I said, oh, who, who are you going to sign? He said, uh, any band with a silly name <laughs> and uh, who come from, from Ireland, and I think he signed the Emperor of Ice Cream. So, you know, these kind of stupid things happened, and people often go on about it's awful what's happened in terms of the, the, the music industry contracting. Uh, you know, yes, there's a lot wrong and piracy, we'll talk about that, but, you know, it got... It became a very bloated industry. There was a lot of money being wasted, and, and bands could really lose sight of what they were doing if they're given a million quid to go into the studio. Mm. And I think that the one thing about the recession in the music industry and the entertainment industries, it's made it more creative again. And people can't just throw money at stuff. Mm. Talking about the Cranberries, you know, I remember one of them saying, Oh, really excited. Our, our video's coming back today. I said, oh, Where did you do the shoot? Oh, we didn't do the shoot. Oh, who's directing it? Oh, I don't know. What's, what's the premise? No idea. <laughs> so basically this video was being done for them, which was coming out of their money because what bands forget is if some record company guy says, let's go to Thornton's tonight, you know, the band's paying for it. I always remember Andy Cairns from Therapy when they had their, their number one album and he was going, this is not right. Therapy shouldn't be at number one. This is something weird and it ain't going to last. <laughs> so, you know, we were having dinner, having a takeaway on the tour bus, which they were staying on, and they'd been on top of the pops the night before. They were going, nah, this is our money. And if we're going to flash restaurants and staying in flash hotels, one day we'll have to pay for it. And, and, and they were sensible, and they're still quite wealthy boys. Oh, fair play to them. I used to love that. Was it Trouble Gun? Was that the one? Ah, uh, Scream Major. That's one of the oh, best. All right. And just like, they, they wrote it on purpose to be like um, Teenage Kicks. They actually took off the last 45 seconds to make you want to play it again. So it wasn't long enough to satisfy. And they actually thought, right, we're going to actually write a song like Teenage Kicks. They did a pretty good job of it. Yeah. Um, okay, so to go back, you, see, you said you were a stringer at the start of Hoppers, is it? What's that? Yeah, basically just sort of reporting what was happening in, in, in Limerick, which at the time wasn't a whole lot. Oh, you were working for Hopper in, in Limerick? Yeah, as a freelancer. I was working for oh, right. a paper called the Limerick Tribune, yeah. and I was doing stuff on, on, on Radio Limerick 1. Uh, just, I suppose, trying to you know get enough work to make a living. I was DJing in some really horrible nightclubs. Right. Really right. horrible, playing some really nasty music. But when you're young like that, you're new in town, you do all sorts of things to make a living. Yeah. Um, but it, I, I was just wanting to get into the industry, and I suppose it's like a lot of things with, with, with entertainment. You know, you just have to keep on knocking on doors and, and say yes before you're actually asked to do something. If someone phones, you go, yeah, yeah. we haven't asked you what it is yet. And I go, no, I'll do it, I'll do it. And, and that was really what I suppose, it was just trying to sort of get a, a foot in the door. Right, okay. And how, how do we just say Hot Press has changed since then, would you say? Well, I suppose when Hot Press first started, first of all, you know, people sort of go, oh, you're the enemy of Ireland. The template for Niall Stokes was always Rolling Stone. And Rolling Stone had started in the late 60s in, in, in the States because of things like, you know, racial segregation, um, the Vietnam War, of course, all that kind of stuff. It's a reaction to a lot of social issues. And in, you know, 1977 in Ireland, there were all these things like, you know, nobody talked about church abuse. Nobody from the South engaged with the freedom fighters stroke paramilitaries 
in the north, on either side, you know, you, you didn't have any contact with the UDA or the IRA, even though these people were affecting, you know, the whole politics of the island. Uh, nobody questioned really authority, didn't talk about drugs. There were all these issues that, that, that the mainstream media wouldn't touch, and that was Niall's idea to start the magazine. By the time I arrive at Hot Press, you know, a lot of that stuff is being dealt with by the mainstream media. And also music, like Niall will tell the tale that when Bob Marley came to play Daily Mount, there was him and three other journalists wanting to talk to, to Bob. Could you imagine now if a corresponding artist came, you'd have like sort of 50 or 60, you know, radio, blogs, websites, the whole thing. So suddenly, you know, the likes of the Irish Times had, had, had a music section and that was very different to, to, to the 70s. I, I just spent... It was meant to be half an hour, ended up being two hours on the phone with Bob Geldof talking about uh, Dublin in 1976, and he's still bitter about it. And it's, it's a fascinating thing to hear him talk about. He says it wasn't even black and white, it was like charcoal brown, there was no colour, and it was, it, it was horrible. So, I mean, there are still social issues that I, I think we have adopted. I've been writing, I was going to say I've been writing on drugs, <laughs> About <laughs> for um, about 25 years. And, you know, I was always this irresponsible hippie who wanted to peddle drugs to young kids. There was a, 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 a guard sergeant said that once uh, in Limerick, and I, I could have sued because I've never told young children to take drugs. But I thought, maybe I don't want to sue a member of the Garda. You know, that's probably not a good idea. And also, I don't really believe in suing if you're a journalist. I think you're, you're big boys and girls and you take it on the chin. But interestingly enough, we, we were derided. You know, I was on um, Pat Kenny on his um, current affairs TV show and was hissed at by old ladies from, from Roscommon because I was saying that legal highs were a good idea and harm reduction. I've had numerous people tell me I'm not fit to have children and, and really have a go at me. It's a very emotive subject. And then all of a sudden, the new minister with responsibility for drug strategy is talking about um, heroin injecting rooms and moving towards the Portuguese model of um, drug decriminalisation. So, you know, if people say, does Hot Press stand for anything, there'll be issues like that that I think we've kind of set the agenda. And it's not that we want a pat on the head, but it's just nice to think that maybe some people's lives might be saved because we have contributed, not changed everybody's minds, we've contributed to, to, to a change. And to sit down with Minister Aon Riordan and hear him talk, I'm just going like, how did this happen? Because previous ministers didn't want the portfolio. They didn't know about it. They didn't care. They hid behind civil servants. Most of them, there were some good ones in the old days, like Pat Carey, bless him, a decent man, and Owen Ryan. But usually it was a political hot potato. And suddenly you had a guy that understood the nuances, was smart, would sit there without notes or civil servants. You could ask him any question you wanted to, and he knew it, didn't want to tape it. He trusted us to have a, an adult sort of conversation. And for the first time in, in a long time, I went away going, my God, we've got a smart person in, in, in Doyle Aaron. Um, so that's been a very interesting thing recently to see how that's all changed. Hmm. So it's, you're, you think it's give or take as relevant now as it was then? Maybe not. It wasn't as... I don't think you can ever be as relevant uh, as when you were the only one. Yeah. Right. You know, I mean, we would have been the first magazine down here to, to talk to the UDA, to talk to the IRA, to get their insight, whether you like them or dislike them. And there's nothing really that you can draw a parallel with. Yeah. You, you, you see issues as, as they come along. I mean, we're in the entertainment game. At the end of the day, once you start paying people a wage, you have a, a you know, responsibility to, to pay their wages. 
And you have to... I've always thought that you're better being more in the mainstream and introducing sort of stuff mm. rather than preaching to the converted. Because if you just... If you, you know, if you call it Drugs Weekly, you know, there's only going to be like 200 people who are going to buy it. But if you've got a mainstream sort of readership, you can introduce these things. And I suppose part of what happens with Heart Press is we, we, we get picked up quite a bit by the national media, the RTEs, the news talks, the Today FMs. So we would feed into that and, and try and go on and again talk about these issues and make them mainstream. And suddenly harm reduction is fashionable, whereas before it was seen as something very irresponsible. I mean, it, it, it's ridiculous because it's about saving lives. Mm -hmm. But unless you were saying, no, this is bad, you were seen as being reckless. Right. Um, and what, what would you say is the importance then of, of the website in now? When did the website actually start? Website's been going about seven or eight years. And, and it's an interesting one because, you know, I've got to say I'm 52. I've come from a very old media background. And there's things that I really like about new media and things that I don't. I suppose not that I don't like new media. It, it, it's that I, I like the old product. I do like a physical magazine. Mm. And what we have said, and this could be the last roar of the dinosaur, <laughs> is that there is a room, there's room in Ireland for a physical product, but also you've got to cross-reference that with the internet because people are not going to magazines like us anymore for news mm. because it's going to be instant and gossip. You know, we, we, we can put a spin on things and have a news roundup. I don't think that I've seen any website yet that presents a 6,000-word interview online as well as it can be in a magazine with photographs and you can flick through it so you know some magazines like q have kind of dumbed down in inverted commas by saying right our, our you know longest article will be a couple of thousand words we've decided no if someone's interesting enough we'll give them six thousand words and that's i suppose something you don't particularly get online or if it is I don't think it's presented in quite the way that makes it satisfying a read. I think attention span would have a lot to do with that as well. I think if you're on the internet and you're reading something and you've got several tabs open and you're on Twitter and Facebook whenever at the same time or checking your mail, mm. the chances are, and like, I, I do this myself and I love to read, you know, like you, you'll get a certain chunk into it and you'll be like, oh, I'll go back and finish mm. later. You might never, you exit the tab, you might never go back to it. But if you have a magazine in your hand, you're probably more likely to flick through it, I guess. I think there's that, and I think you need diversity of media. And first and foremost, I'm a journalist, so I like there to be opportunities for, I mean, is journalism, you know, a, a di you know there's got to be good, smart content. And in a way, I think we're still trying to figure it out, everybody. It's looking a little bit more sort of, ah, this is how it can work. Because a few years ago, it was very hard to monetize the internet. But now you've got the Joes and the Broadsheets and the Journal have found out a way to, to, to monetize. And the advertising spend online is increasing all the time, and it's, it's pretty much reached a parity with print and radio and TV. A few years ago, you could set a website up and have lots of hits, but there was no way of really selling it. So we're beginning to get a, 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 a sort of a, a picture of what's happening. I mean, I'm a Twitter addict. I love it. And I think it's a really good way to engage with people. It's a very useful tool. It's fun, of course, but also from the point of view as a journalist, it is really good to be out there. And I even like it if someone says, you're an idiot. Da, da, da. I'll go, well, look, what part of the article? And, and I, I know now not to come home at half ten of the evening and decide to be a keyboard warrior. I've had a couple of those. And I'll just say to people, that's interesting. Thank you for engaging. And why don't you write a piece in or a letter to the editor? And I think you can change people's opinions. You, you, you're no longer in an ivory tower. I, mm. I think that's the thing about Hot Press. I think people have perceptions of it as being this, that, and the other. And I, and I like to think by, by us being on social media, using it and enjoying it, that we're a bit more accessible now. 
and of course with the website we we you know with with a magazine there's finite space um so at least with the web we we, we really like you know funnily enough we, we we've got quite a good following within the hip-hop community mm-hmm. just because we have people so my colleague Maeve Heslin who really loved it and, and she got me to love Irish hip-hop Irish hip-hop has found its voice and they're kind of going geez well we thought hot press was like Christy Moore and Mary Black and we're going well no not really but they're, they're quite surprised that we'll, we'll put the videos up and show an interest it's a genuine interest and that's one of the lovely things about the web you can bang up videos, you can put up sort of downloads and streams, all that kind of stuff. So we've been able to broaden our musical net a little bit and reflect what's happening because we've got, you know, the internet as well as the, the print yeah. magazine. Do I mean, you think there's an unfair perception on Hot Press in that regard, kind of based on what you just said? Well, if you've been around for 40 years, you, you, you become part of the establishment in people's eyes. And I totally understand that. And I'm not trying to turn around and say we're, we're radical and, you know... We have to balance what we do with, you know, who we put on the cover can, can be plus or minus five or 10,000, and we do need to sell copies. We need to be able to say we're physically selling 18, 19, 20,000 copies. We've got to get advertising. And, and also, I like the fact that someone might buy Hot Press for Florence and the Machine and then go, oh, Russ and Garno family in Limerick, bloke from Clare, bloke from Togo, bloke from Zimbabwe. That's really interesting. Um, we might go and check that out. Whereas if the whole magazine was about new unsigned bands, you'd probably sell 200 copies and, and it's not going to broaden it out. So we, we, we do. I mean, you know, we, we've done a lot of first interviews with bands and, you know, we really try to keep aware of what's happening. Um, I love just the arguments in the office. You know, there's like five computers all playing music. You go, what's that in the background? And, you know... You can't even be very scientific about it because there's so many bands now. Mm. Uh, and the reason there are so many very good bands compared to the 20 years ago is the fact that people can record for nothing. Mm. You know, you used to, have to save up 1,500 quid to go and do a demo and you weren't used to being in a studio, the demo would be crap and the band would lose interest. You know, we do demo calls for all sorts of things throughout the year, various competitions, various theme nights that we do. And you're going like, but this band's brilliant. I've, I've never heard of them. And they've been together six months, and that's because they could have been together six months, but they're recording in the, the bassist's bedroom on a computer every single night. So the quality of stuff out there is incredible. And, I mean, if we were to give every band in Ireland the coverage they deserve, mm. we'd have to run to about 500 pages every fortnight. I mean, really. <laughs> so you just got to kind of go out there, see what's happening. And, and that's why it's important for bands to make things happen, to kind of be busy, to be out there. Yeah. And I think bands have got really smart that, that they know they have to, to, to grab people's attention. It's such a crowded marketplace. David Kitt made a good point, actually, that in a way it's almost too easy to make a record. Yeah. You know, I'm not saying the old days were better. Of course they weren't because so many talented bands couldn't get out of the rehearsal room. But you can put a record out now and get it heard and be rubbish. Mm. Those normal filters. There was a filter in the old days to a degree that to get a record deal you had to be a certain kind of level. I'm glad... Those barriers have been taken away. It's democratised the whole thing. But, you know, it, it's, I suppose what, you know, magazines and blogs are, are filters. And if somebody trusts you enough to go, well, if he likes that, I'll, I'll give it a listen. If she likes that, I'll give it a go. So you're trying to build up a trust as a kind of filter, whether it's Nyla Nine or me or Jim Carroll. We're all have our own perhaps followings. People who trust us don't trust us. 
There are certain journalists who, if they don't like a record, I know I'm going to love it. So, you know, whatever way. So you, you just try and keep your passion for music, keep your ears open, and, and if someone's making things happen in particular, you like to try and showcase what they're doing. Yeah, there's a few things there that all kind of led into one thing for me is like how useful Twitter can be and like bands being proactive and the amount of good bands there are nowadays, which the, the hashtag that just happened, the Brilliant Irish Bands, that I think Delorento started yesterday. Or? It's fantastic. Yeah, it's fantastic. It was top of the trends, wasn't it? So. Even about six months ago, um, I follow, I still have my, my hearts in London circa 1976, and I'm still a punk nut, although I think I've moved on. I don't like, you know, what is class as punk now, because the whole idea was get in there, do the damage, get out. But I was follow this guy called Vic Goddard, who, um, punk hero and postman. But he was one of the original sort of 76 kind of UK punk bands. And he just sort of said, you know, doing a load of dates. And I said, oh, I'd love you to come to Ireland. Oh, we've never been asked. I went, ah, but I know this guy called Peter Jones, who's a member of Paranoid Visions. Peter, you know, Vic wants a gig. Two hours later, they had their gig announced. Uh-huh. And they're coming to, I can't remember the venue, they're, they're crossing Dublin in September. So things like that are kind of exciting. The, the idea that you can sort of hear a track and, and tweet it and the band makes contact, you yeah. know. And um, it was very funny, actually, before um, Christmas, I was followed uh, in succession by Jedwood <laughs> and Danny Morrison. <laughs> One who was in jail and two who should be in jail. Um, and it was just the strangest thing, you know, convicted IRA terrorist and, and Jedward gives you crimes against music. But I just thought how wonderfully random Twitter is. Uh, boy, George followed me the other day. And ah, now, lads, the best thing's happened to me for, for years. Look up on YouTube, Hawkwind Silver Machine. It was an early 70s hippie tune that somehow got onto Top of the Pops. Uh, Lemmy was the lead singer uh, and managed to get fired from the band um, for, for various uh, misdemeanors. It's not like him at all, though. Not like him at all. <laughs> but anyway, um, I'd have been about eight or nine, and I loved Hawkwind, and they had this very statuesque exotic dancer called Stacia, who was six foot two and would come on just covered in, in oil paint, but nothing else. And you can imagine my hormones were starting to rage. And the other day, suddenly, I got followed on Twitter by... Stacia Gates? I looked, I thought, a little bit grey, but it is. She's now an artist who, she, she left the rock and roll game. You can imagine why. So it wasn't too good for her health. And she ended up, uh, she's now living in Stradbally, but she went to Limerick School of Art and Design to do it's a great primer. college. Great college. Very good. I used to live in Limerick. And, um, I went to that college. Yeah. Some great I think we, people I think we got it. that, aren't we? Yeah, well, I just wanted to make sure he knew. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I'm a rock star. And then she went to, uh, to Crawford in Cork. But I was going like, you know, the nine-year-old me almost exploded with excitement. And I was speaking to her on the, on the phone the other day and a few tales from back in the day. Really lovely lady. But I mean, like, you know, how would you have connected with Stacia from Hawkwind 20 or 30 years ago? You know, it, it's, it's wonderful that people can actually have some kind of direct contact mm. with people in bands. Uh, you know, it's taken for granted now, but the idea that you could have just interacted in real time with David Bowie or, you know, all these kind of heroes from my, my youth was just would have been mind-blowing at the time. Yeah. Um, like, not to kind of, you know, Get, get grim or anything but you mentioned the kind of the big picture there a little, a little while ago about how kind of things have changed kind of websites and like kind of the way people are kind of monetizing the way people are kind of mm. even obviously content is a word that you know like you know it's kind of changed its meaning so to speak and I mean I wonder 
I, I often wonder if we're losing craft, I, like, you know, because you see a lot of websites, it's just like lists and GIFs and it's just like, you know, kind of stuff where it's like the, the chance for people to kind of tag themselves in. And I, I wonder if people even really read a lot of the articles that they see on social media. I mean, I guess as someone who's kind of grown up with, a, you know, kind of like an older style of media and like the days obviously of going on tour with a band for a month and writing like 5,000 words on it, they're gone because like, you have to be quick and first and mm. get everything in and compete now. I mean, like, do you, do you ever worry that we're kind of, we're losing a bit of There's a couple of nuance. things. There's a, a good phrase you know parasites which are just literally generating no original content content and just you know rewriting stuff and i think at some point someone's got to have original material or the whole net's just going to, be, to implode so th- th- there's gonna always be a role for good smart content um i think you know for a while we're all going piracy is terrible and this is bad but you've got you can't uninvent things so this is the way it is, and, and you have to adapt. Now, a lot of the, the major record companies were like those massive, big sort of like oil tankers. They took like, you know, take a, a day to turn around. Because they are waiting for head office in, in, in New York or, or L.A. to tell them what to do, record companies were very, very slow. I think they lost the hearts and minds. You know, going back years, Pirate Bay was there. 30 million users and, and rather than try to work out a deal with Pirate Bay and sort of get in on this this download thing really early they, they sued Pirate Bay and they, they turned 30, 30 million people into criminals so I, I think the industry lost the hearts and minds but but now they're beginning to get smarter again that they're they're engaging more um, you know I think it's brilliant that Universal Music Ireland have signed four or five bands through their Dublin office you know the Riptide movement you know the Galaxy De Laurentos. And they're trying to make Ireland a, a power base for these bands so they can make money at home. But they're obviously sort of saying, look, you're going to have to break foreign markets. Um, so, but at least it's happening and, and, and they're signing. In, in terms of, of the craft of the journalist, I mean, yeah, the trips abroad are, are less frequent. You're doing so much more on the telephone. You're being told, you know, you get 20 minutes on the phone with whoever. That's quite generous sometimes. One of the great things about the Irish industry being so buoyant, when I first came to Ireland, the idea of sticking an Irish band on the cover would have been like, oh, can't you get an English band or an American band? You know, there was seriously in Ireland a sort of inferiority complex. And my pop psychology is there's two things. That bastard Ray Houghton putting the ball in the English net. And you too <laughs> conquering the world. Because suddenly it's like, well, you don't have to be number 86 for it. We could be number one. We can go to World Cups and suddenly... So the thought that a band like Bell X1, back in the 70s or 80s, not selling records in the UK or America, but selling out the three arena, that, that just didn't happen. And now, you know, we can spend a week with Bell X1. They might not want us there, but we'll just, like, <laughs> uh, hound them. But, you know, so we can spend that length of time with a band in Ireland. We can't spend a week on the road with, with Marilyn Manson. But Bell X1, Villagers, those bands will sell as well. You know, they're world famous in Ireland. We have a confidence now. So there's, so, you know, I think probably in the, the 70s, there was two or three bands, Irish bands, you could put on the cover of Hot Press. Now there's 20. So, you know, the way you kind of compete with the access, you, you can't get the same access as Vanity Fair or Rolling Stone Q, is, is a lot of the time you, you, you kind of support your own in, in Ireland. Right. Who do you think is... Uh really great at the moment uh, new bands and I just love the diversity again I can remember doing things in the 90s where people said tell us about the Irish music industry and you go oh, well, 
you know, you two, Van Morrison, Shane O'Connor and Planksty. And that was it. But how can you, you, you've got, you know, Rosango family in, in Limerick doing what they're doing. You've got David Holmes, who's one of the sort of preeminent, you know, film scorers in the world. You've got Hosier. Uh, you've still got all the older bands going out there and doing the business. Lisa Hannigan. You've got a great new wave of, of more indie bands like Girl Band. You know, you've got Soak. All ages, all backgrounds, all doing it differently, all with different expectations. It used to be, yeah, we'll sell a million records, become millionaires. A lot of those bands don't expect to do that. They'll be happy and can survive selling twenty or 30,000 records. They're cutting their cloth. And, you know, people sometimes go, oh, there's not much coming through in Ireland. You're going, but we're the size of Greater Birmingham. <laughs> How many great bands come out of Greater Birmingham every year? And the answer is kind of like one or two. I, you know, I'm not just flag-waving, but we, we, we do punch above our weight. And I was having this argument the other day, actually, on the telly about the artist exemption, um, 50 grand at the moment being, being sort of um, shelved. Revenue want to save their eight or nine million. And I was just making the point that, you know, if you stood at Dublin Airport and asked a lot of the people coming in, or Shannon or Cork, why are you coming to Ireland? A lot would say, oh, the great films, the great music, the great literature. And, okay, yeah, other people don't get tax breaks. But in the same way that we give sports people grants to go out there and achieve things, I think music is really, really important for Brand Ireland. And I think, you know, there's been a devaluing of, of all kind of artists in, in, in terms of, you know, they're not getting paid for their work. There's a well-known Irish singer-songwriter, um, who burst into tears when I was talking to her a couple of years ago, and I'd done nothing wrong. Um, and it was basically because she's saying, Stuart, like, you know, I used to make a decent living from music, and now I'm making 10 grand a year. And if I was fixing, you know, leaky faucets, I'd be paid 300 quid. I make a record, and it just gets downloaded. I can't make any money. And I do feel that, that we have some whether they have a right to be supported. But I think it's in our interests to support those people. And the government, I mean, the music industry is, in Ireland is probably a billion euro industry. And regardless of the wrongs or rights of the Croke Park residents, last year, those five Garth Brooks gigs get pulled, worth 130 million euro. If that had been a factory pulling out of Japan, of, 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 sorry, a Japanese factory pulling out of Limerick, They've dispatched the minister with responsibility, his underlings, and a team of people to make sure that didn't happen. But it fell between portfolios. There was no minister with responsibility for it. When MCD pulled oxygen out of Kildare because the guards unilaterally increased the, 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 the policing costs some ridiculous amount, they couldn't afford to run the festival, losing 15 million I think, each year for the local economy, plus the VAT on beer and on, on, on ticket sales. No minister had responsibility. I had a guy across here, he's called Martin Elborn, who books two or three of the stages at Glastonbury, and he was saying there's no joined-up thinking. He'd been over in uh, South Australia advising the government there on music policy, and the mayor of Toronto, not the crack-smoking one, but the guy that followed on, <laughs> uh, who wants to turn Toronto into a centre of musical excellence. He says, you, you've got... Facebook and Google down the docks, but there's no sign of Warner Brothers and Universal Music. He said, there's, I, I've had a look online and there's no interaction between the music industry and, and Google and Facebook. He said, most cities would kill to have these new creative industries 
right in the centre. But he says, you guys, he says, you're known for running great gigs. You've got great industry people. You've got great bands. He says, but Jesus Christ, the disorganisation. So, you know, that really gets on my go. That the government just do nothing for, for music, really, in this country. In fact, they just put barriers in the way. Mm. Right. Well, we, we pretty much have to uh, wrap it up, I think. Uh, you have to, you've to run, run off. Um, uh, maybe I'll just ask one more uh, question about, about music industry now. And you kind of grew up with music in, in, I suppose, the 70s and 80s. So with that... Uh, it, it's easy for anybody to put music out. I can, you know, sing into my iPhone now and put it up on YouTube. Please, and, please, yeah, please, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get millions of hits. You know, like just that, that, like that Friday song, or whatever. And they, they really get big because people are slagging them off. Um, I suppose, is it disappointing for you? I mean, there's great bands, but there's also like a preeminence of this terrible music as well. You know Horrible. what? I, I, I just think it's shooting fish in a barrel sometimes. I don't like certain kinds of music. I'd rather devote my energy to the stuff they do like. And I've just been saying how hard it is, you know, for bands to make a living. But it is still possibly the best industry in the world to be in if you can make it. And the thing is, it doesn't matter how tough things are, how much piracy affects things, bands will find ways to get their music out there. There's more music than ever being made. And also this idea that, that, that kids don't care about it. They do. Kids do care about music. It's one of... 10 things now. It used to be the only game in town, that and radio, you could do in your bedroom. Well, there's one other thing you could do. But, um, you know, nowadays there's so many other things. But music still means such a lot. You know, the Three Arena, second busiest venue in the world. People still go to gigs. There's still value to be had. People still live for records. They, they live for concerts. So I think it's a really good industry. It's tougher than ever to be in. But you'll find a way somehow to kind of make it if, you, if you're good enough and you're determined enough. Right. Do you have any more questions, Cliff? I don't. I think okay. we should let the man run. We should let you go. He's a busy guy. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks very much, Stuart, thanks for a lot, lads. coming we enjoyed on it. Podcast. Thank you, sir. So that was episode 11 of the Headstuff podcast with Stuart Clark. Um, thanks for downloading or listening uh, whatever way you did it. Um, that was me and Dave talking to... Uh, uh, Stuart and Connor laughing in the background a couple of times. That was him sniggering there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's him laughing. Nailed it. Um, so, uh, so thanks for listening. As I say, um, if you haven't yet, you can uh, subscribe on iTunes and please uh, rate and, and if you want to give us a review, um, give us a good one. Uh, you can also do that on, on SoundCloud um, and you can now support the Headstuff podcast on either patreon or patreon.com p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash headstuff um, and you can uh, pledge whatever amount you like as long as it's more than a euro and you get all sorts of different rewards the higher you go but Dave come around and play some songs Dave house. will come around and play any cover song from any <laughs> any no, band you tenor, like tenor, tenor, <laughs> he'll play the entire 1989 album okay uh, acoustically <laughs> you acoustically at your front door <laughs> <laughs> if you pledge over 50 euro Dave doesn't Dave have a mic anymore so he can't defend himself and play can you play another instrument other than the drums he'll play the he's, he's not speaking for some reason but um, he'll play the uh, he'll play the entire 1989 album on drums I wasn't speaking just because I wasn't sure if the microphone was in the correct position <laughs> and I didn't want to get it wrong uh, I will yeah I'll, uh, um, yeah okay. 50 euros a week yeah, Dave a will week? play 
Oh, sorry, a month, a month. Oh, all right, all right. We'll, we'll, we'll work it out. Yeah, but we'll work it out. I'm definitely intrigued by this arrangement, which <laughs> I've just found myself Maybe in. you won't come around to your house. If you come here, Dave will play on the drums. I'll complain about things yeah. <laughs> for, for you. We'll work out what it is, but anyway, there you go. Um, so there's all that. Uh, thanks to uh, Connor Wilkins from uh, Wilkins Sound Systems uh, for doing the sound and for taking part in uh, the intro and laughing. <laughs> thanks to Dave, the co-host, um, Thanks to Video Blue for the uh, team tune. And, uh, of course, most thanks to Stuart Clark for taking the time to come and be on the podcast. Uh, That's it for this week, and we'll be back soon. Mm -hmm.